0: Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame, but if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week at a time. Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Jack Zipes, Professor Emeritus of German Comparative Literature and Folklore at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. And uh, Dr. Zipes, uh, we're here today to talk about your book, Buried Treasures, The Power of Political Fairy Tales. And it's a real honor to have you. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So tell me a little bit, I mean, it seems like this is your career, right? Like you have done a lot in, uh, uh, children's literature, German literature, German Jewish culture, these sorts of things. But why this book in particular, why political fairy tales?
1: Well, uh, I wanted to sort of point out that fairy tales are not just these bedtime stories, sweet bedtime stories for, for kids and, uh, I wanted to demonstrate that they really uh, have a great deal to uh, teach us about our own present-day conflicts and uh, ideas and beliefs and so on. And, and so um, I chose uh, 10, approximately 10, if not 12, uh, unusual writers who wrote uh, during World War I and World War II and who uh, really have a great deal to offer us, and also who sacrifice their lives in trying to defeat fascism, uh, both in the uh, early part of the 20th century and also in the middle part of the 20th century.
0: Thank you. I uh, For our audience, when you say fairy tale, do you have a... a- a good, concise definition so they can get a, a feel for it. I feel like everyone kind of instinctively knows, right? <laughs> yeah. But it, it, all of a sudden, it can get a little bit ethereal, right? Right, right.
1: Yeah, basically, uh, you can't define what a fairy tale is because, uh, you know, in almost all the tales, like in the Brothers Grimm or Anderson and so on, there are no fairies <laughs> in the tales, <laughs> I, mean, I swear. right. Uh, the, right. The, the, the term came to being in approximately 1696 in France, uh, and where, uh, the French began taking the oral tales, the peasant tales, or tales told by simple people, um, and, uh, they called the, and, and they were mainly women, very rebellious women in Louis XIV's court. And they called the tales "contes de fées," which, you know, literally speaking in French, is uh, "fairy conte de fées" tales about fairies. Now, in their tales that they told, uh, fairies did appear. They they were brilliant. Uh, they they were just as good as the famous Charles Perrault, who is the one, considered one of the great writers of fairy tales in the world. But they, they were just as good, if not better, <laughs> than Perrault. As, as usual, women do not yeah. get their say, <laughs> right? right? And right. Uh, And so uh, people started liking, the, for instance, in Germany, uh, the, the word for fairy tale is maschen. Maschen means little, little tale. It doesn't mean anything about fairies and so on. So essentially, essentially, fairy tales bother, I'm sorry, uh, uh, borrow uh, from all types of genres in very imaginative, unique ways that really uh, demonstrate in the telling of tales how powerful our imaginations are and what we can. Magically do sort of in the, in the spirit of fairies, uh, to, uh, help us understand why we are in certain conflicts or jams or, or, uh, wh- why we want to love somebody and so on and so forth. In other words, these were very unusual tales that people recognized. They, they, they didn't have to, nobody had to say, uh, I'm going to sit down to you, dear and tell you a fairy tale you know before you go to bed or or uh, in a circle in peasant peasant homes and so on, things like that so uh i i mean i have written you know long essays that outline you know going back to the uh to to the rise of myths for instance mm-hmm. the the word uh, myth uh more or less means uh uh, uh more or less means fairy tale, and I mean for the Romans and and the Greeks and so on, they the tales that they told were also extremely unusual, filled with imagination, uh, with tremendous, uh, uh, let us say, uh, suspense, and uh, uh, so uh, it, uh, way before sixteen uh, ninety seven when 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 Comte-a-fey was. Was uh, sort of developed. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans had their tales, and they w- they were very similar to fairy tales. And uh, nobody bothered definitions about what is a fairy tale.
0: Right, right. Um, even as you're you're saying this, and you know the next step is like you're talking about political fairy tales, but just that first mention of uh, conte fe like the. Rebellious women in Louis the court, like immediately it's political, right? Like I mean there, there seems to be hints of that. Can you talk a little bit more about these rebellious women, like where that comes from, why they felt the need to draw these out?
1: Yeah, well if if you recall the, that women were not allowed to have any professions in the in the uh, 17th century and uh they they were highly educated i mean i mean the upper classes of course and they were uh amazingly intelligent and they knew how to play uh music and so on and they, and uh because they had tons of money the richer ones the aristocrats they would uh have what they called salons at their homes where people could perform, men and women <laughs> together, stories, songs, music, and so on and so forth. And in uh, these salons, uh, the, uh, uh, they would take motifs or uh, information from tales that the peasants would uh, told and they would modify them into really brilliant uh, stories of different kinds. And so it was uh, uh, during this time in the 17th century when Louis 14th was uh, this, the uh, sort of autocratic king in France and in, in Europe that women began uh, saying, we want to uh, go beyond our homes. We, we want to tell tales that will... Uh, sort of defend us and so on. So there are, these tales are, are amazingly, in quotes, feminist before the term feminist, uh, was coined, coined. So they would tell tales and they, they, uh, they were all Catholic, of course. They were raised Catholic in, in France, but none of them believed in priests and, and the Catholic religion. Uh, and so their tales generally, uh, depict uh, these amazing powerful fairies that would punish man uh, male or female one of the uh, most famous writers was Ma- Madame de uh, uh, Madame Do, and and she wrote about uh, two volumes uh, of fairy tales and uh, there was a sort of like uh, she influenced many of the other women at that time who also, you know, wrote, uh, fairy tales. And, uh, so that was sort of the beginning of the l- labeling. Okay. Labeling of these tales. Mm-hmm. Up to that time, they were simply called little, tale, like in German, maschen is little, fa- little tale, not little fairy tale, but little tale and uh so the the uh, French were the ones who added the these uh, I would call, scurrilous and powerful uh fairies to their
0: tales: yeah, and so one thing that does seem to stick out is like for it to be a fairy tale, it at least has to be short, right? There has to be brevity, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 like you can't have a, a fairy tale novel. Um, though people have drawn them out now, like in in fantasy, that's not, that's no longer a fairy tale. It's a novel drawn from that. Um, exactly. As you, and I, I might be barking up the wrong tree entirely, but from what I understand, part of the Grimm's motivation in collecting the German fairy tales was part of the effort of, uh, German unification and nationalism. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. But uh, we have to be a little careful about that because, you know, some people have tried to label the Grimm's fascists or or the early fascists of some kind. Uh, The Grimm's were actually from a middle-class family. Uh, uh, They were born in the 1880s. And... uh, uh, they uh, and their father uh, died when they were eleven and twelve, and uh, they really had to, um, let us say, fend for themselves uh, in at the university, at, at high school, and university, and so on. And they uh, felt uh, th- uh, this was also the uh, the time of the Napoleonic Wars. So France again plays a major role here. And, uh, they, uh, favored, uh, they, they, were democratics, in, in quotes. Uh, they, they wanted because they lost, they were not from the aristocracy and they, they had lost their father and they had to, you know, show through their work how good they were and, 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 and they became professors later on in their lives. Uh, but they felt that the people's, the common people's voices, uh, formed uh, the, let us say, uh, basis of a culture in society. That that it, uh, we could actually learn a great deal about who we are and what we are and what we stand for, what what we want to celebrate, how we want to plant fields or uh, share work and so on and so forth, so that the brothers Grimm uh, uh, really uh, wanted to find, they they wrote on many, many different themes, even wrote the first dictionary in German and so on and so forth. Uh, so they wanted to find stories that would celebrate uh, all of the different states. There, there were at that time, three hundred principalities in Germany, <laughs> and yeah, right. uh, o- o- always fighting one another, right? And uh, and so eventually, uh, the Brothers Grimm uh, demonstrated that these tales could enable people to grasp, um, you know, what what is the significance of the celebrations. Of living together, working together, and so on and so forth, and uh, init- initially they thought that they could find uh, the pure sort of German tales. That that's where it gets a little dicey with regard to fascism and so on.
0: Right, but, right.
1: But they quickly learned that almost all the tales that they found from friends, colleagues, sending them tales that they kept and redid and things like that. So that these tales were coming from Italy <laughs> from Greece from, <laughs> from all over the world uh, practically no, well, let, let us say the European world and that uh, that there were similar beliefs, similar ways that people reacted to the same type of living conditions that they had in Germany. so in other words, uh, they, they quickly realized after the first two books they did seven different editions, adding tales, distracting tales and and things like that. and they uh, they were smart and intelligent, and they realized that, hey, you know we're really uh, uh doing international tales that are our our, our our books are not really German, even though they call them uh, German tales. Uh, but they, they owe their existence to other countries and to other storytellers and things like that. And, uh, they uh, never tried, uh, to, uh, s- uh, define what a fairy tale was. They never, uh, uh, insisted that they were Germanic and so on and so forth. They, uh, were just brilliant, uh, Ethnologists and uh, they they really understood how important language stories and so on uh, were to uh, various uh, let us say societies or cultures, and that was a, a great sort of contribution to the rise of storytelling in Europe.
0: Absolutely, I, as I listen to that, like. Um a really inspiring story and there's a reason the tales have endured uh now one thing you mentioned about them though is this idea of this great imaginative aspect that there's a lot of imagination involved um and in some cases and maybe this is my own lack of understanding it seems almost like there's an opaque symbolism um as an example i uh maybe this is an example of me being a poor parent but i have just taken upon myself to read um the original Grimm's fairy tales to my kids and uh my uh oldest child um she's like oh I know Red Riding Hood and uh we started reading Red Riding Hood and of course at the end (laughs) in uh in the edition that we have right because I think there's slight differences but uh the wolf gets its stomach cut open Red Riding Hood comes out grandma comes out (laughs) and then they put stones in the wolf's stomach sew it back up and then the wolf wakes up and then it dies from the stones in its stomach and right. one my oldest uh girl she's looking at me and she's like wait what is that and i'm like well, I, I i did this to bother you i'm not gonna lie i am not maybe the best parent um but the <laughs> the other side to it is i, I I really enjoy that aspect of the tales, like the things yes. like the stones and the stomach and that sort of thing. But I yes. have no idea what's going on, right? Is, is there some explanation for that? Or is that just part of the imaginative aspect that, like, there's something that has been carried through kind of opaquely through the tradition?
1: Yes. Yeah. No, no, it's definitely uh, very imaginative because uh, it, the in the original, not the, I won't say the original, but in the, Going back to Charles Perrault in uh, 1697, he was the first, uh, let us say, educated writer who wrote his version of Little Red Riding Hood that he got from, again, from peasants, probably. And uh, in his tale, however, uh, the uh, wolf eats up Little Red Riding Hood and she dies because... uh, (laughs) Uh, and and there's a mod uh, at the end of the tale. Little girls who invite wolves into their parlors deserve what they get. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. so w- so then you have to think. And now, now there are at least a thousand. And I'm not kidding you. A thousand mm. up to d- today and throughout the world, maybe a thousand or more versions of Little Red Riding Hood. My argument is that uh, certain fairy tales become mimetic memes. They become mm-hmm. memes because they provide information about that are crucial for the uh, survival of uh, the human of human beings. And if we look at Little Red Riding Hood carefully, it's a tale about rape. Uh, it's a tale about li- a little girl, okay, uh, uh, and and of course in those times, no matter what the society was, girls were not supposed to go out without any god, any not not a god, anybody accompanying them,
0: right? And and if a chaperone they did, guardian, yes,
1: exactly, and and if they went into the woods by themselves, uh, then uh, you know they were liable to be raped or. Uh, 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 and uh, that, if if you accept that, and I hope you will, <laughs> as my interpretation, and I've written about it a great deal, uh, then uh, it's really interesting to see that up through today, uh, the uh, tendency in most of the endings has now switched to the girl. Getting the better of the of the wolf, and why? Of course, it has to do with the change in the society's uh, sort of uh, let us say not laws but customs, and and that that we don't we have now feminism. Women have come into their own. They won't stand for this. And in fact, you know, some of the greatest writers today of fairy tales, not just like. Based on the Grimm's or anything, like that, have uh, been women. They, they've really come into their own and asserted themselves. And so, uh, you, if if you go into any store that has maybe selling twenty different titles of Little Red Riding Hood or so on, you'll see there's a remarkable <laughs> ending in each one of the tales. And so that's what makes. These tales really exciting, and and that's and you also see the politics changing, and, you know in the seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth centuries, uh, men uh, determined the lives of women, you know, and that's not how we live today. Right. And if you if you dare to write a story that uh, harks back to little girls who. Uh, invite Wilson to their Apollos, deserve what they get uh you will be uh criticized or right. you, you will be uh, questioned
0: and rightfully so right like that's yes. what we don't want. Yeah, yeah 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 absolutely i um right. uh and this is something I read fifteen years ago and I haven't been able to find the book since um but uh, uh in a very similar vein I remember reading um some cultural criticism that said the same thing about werewolf stories and vampire stories that vampires were about nobles and how you couldn't trust them coming to seduce you at night you know like they come they always come at night and they come in in their carriage and they come through the window and they they're mesmerizing they're good looking and charming and then werewolves are people that you know but at certain times you know if you venture out at night like by the light of the full moon they all sudden become these hairy beasts and it's really interesting like as soon as i saw that i was like i mean even like uh you know the very uh simple like gar- uh, vampires hate garlic right all of a sudden you're like well if if you ate a lot of garlic or rubbed it, like rubbed it around your neck that would be uh that would put off some nobleman right and so right. Right. um I, I, are you familiar with that? Like, is yes. that something like, I mean, I have not been able to find that since, so.
1: Yes. Yeah, the, the, the very unusual, like I said, fairy tales are unusual imaginative tales. And they deal with situations that bother people or people want to celebrate them, uh, certain things. And they want, they find their own narrative way. To express themselves and some people are better storytellers than others or writers. And, uh, and so we have a really, uh, amazing, uh, throughout the world, amazing types and, 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 and scholar, a lot of scholars have, have noted these things and written books or, uh, developed catalogs or indexes, uh, and so uh, it's exciting. It's an exciting field. And you learn a lot, not only about uh, society, but about yourself when you read these tales.
0: Yeah. I, I, I Even just to push it a little further, just like you said, like Little Red Riding Hood, it's often been the other way. Like vampires and werewolves are now, now they have happy endings, right? Like it's not that you're like taken away. It's that... Uh, it's kind of interesting. You almost see like the ascendancy of the beauty and the beast model where the the beauty tames the beast. And like, I mean, not that I am a Twilight fan by any means, but like this idea that like the beauty can tame even this beast is kind of a, just a fascinating idea.
1: Right.
0: Um, but I don't want to take away from the main thrust of your book. I mean, this yes. has been fascinating. No, to me. no don't problem. Give, yeah. No problem. But uh, you focused on World War One and World War II political fairy tales. Yes. Uh, do you mind expounding on that a little bit?
1: Yes. Yeah, you know, um, the dark days—not not that we have very bright days right now—but uh, in the uh, early, early first half of the twentieth century, uh, there were two world wars, and uh, and and during these wars, uh, uh, people had. To try to find their own way to present what is happening, uh, and to and to also disguise their critiques of, let's say, Hitler, Mussolini, or you know who, uh, and they use uh, then symbolical um, uh, artworks and and uh, literature and so so on and so forth, and. Um, uh, and people, uh, and by, by the time the, you know, 20th century arrived, more people had learned to read. You know, up, up until the 20th century, uh, about half of the world couldn't read, if not more than <laughs> half. And so, but uh, people, artists, intellectuals, uh, creative people, uh, you name it, or just the ordinary people had to find different ways sometimes to communicate with what they were feeling, what they were seeing, and so on. And uh, and, and they wanted to uh, sort of protest against a lot of the uh, things that were going on uh, in both world wars. And so uh, it was really during the – and quite often these people were either executed or – had to flee their countries. None, none of them in in my book, uh, I I discuss about twelve to thirteen really great fairy tale writers and artists. Um, they they never none of them wound up in the in in the country into which they were born. They either fled to mm. America, they fled fled to Norway, or or were killed and so on. And so I wanted to. Um, uh, demonstrate that these tales were uh, uh, really substantial or significant for what they had to say about what was going on in the world at that time and that they risked their lives you know to uh, to do what they did. So that's what uh, I think drove me you know to to write about all all of these uh, particular authors
0: I, I love that because it's easy to be dismissive of stories and their power but when you see people who are persecuted and chased from their homes because of the like on the one hand it illustrate it's a it's a story of courage of their courage and also it's something that illustrates the power of what they're doing right yes like <laughs> like you don't chase someone away, Who's not like who's just sitting there, right? Like they're like this is like obviously um causing a problem for these fascists. Yes. Um I, now there are many of these that um I want to ask about, but the one that uh, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't like I think everyone will be familiar with. Tell me a little bit about Bambi and Bambi's courage, this this idea of Felix Sultan and his yes. uh dilemma.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. Now uh OK, we have to remember uh, begin with that Bambi was written uh, between uh, 1920 and 1922 came out in 1923. So what, what this is a uh, novel not written for children, by the way, okay He uh, F- Felix Sultan was always angry <laughs> at the critics uh, who thought that this was a children's book and it never, ever was written. Uh, uh, that way it was really sort of a uh, autobiographical, symbolical, autobiographical novel about his own life. He was Bambi, and Bambi was 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 uh, Felix Salton. and mm-hmm. so this particular novel uh uh really reflects the pogroms. There, there were uh three hundred thousand. Jews after World War One killed because Europeans, the Germans and the Austrians, felt that the Jews had betrayed Germany or Austria, and so and and a lot of the Eastern European countries, uh, literally, uh, had these uh, pogroms for about uh, in the early parts of the nineteen twenties, and so we have to. Uh, Felix Sultan was a, a, a journalist, and he was not a dummy. Uh, uh, he may have had other, you know, faults or what, uh, and so on, but it's quite clear, and, and many other critics have uh, agreed with me and, and have uh, demonstrated that, uh, indeed, this is a novel, you know, about pogroms where, where men go into the forest and just, um, out of pleasure, shoot animals and, and cause them to die. And so he, uh, he really demonstrated the, con- uh, the uh, very difficult situation that, that people were in at the end of World War I and also demonstrated what a forecast to a certain extent what was to come in terms of the Holocaust. Now, he didn't do this in, in any pedantic way. He did it in in a really brilliant way in which he also questioned himself because he himself used to like to hunt animals. And he would only kill, as he uh, he tried to say, animals if they were going to be eaten and so on and so forth. Not like many other hunters who just do do it for, for the coat or something like that, for the skin. And uh, so uh, Salton uh, uh, became famous quickly because he touched a nerve uh, in, in all of Europe, not, not just in Vienna or Austria, he was Austrian, or Germany or, or the rest of Europe, but also in America, His, uh, when the book was translated in 1928, uh, the uh, book did extremely well. Uh, there was the Book of the Month Club, of course, which helped. Uh, and uh, that was the beginning of these book clubs that, that made a lot of money and so on and so forth. Uh, but nevertheless, people sort of saw something in that story. Uh, the difficulty with Bambi, of course, is that uh, the anti-Semitic uh, uh, Disney uh, 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 who was not really de- couldn't read English or German, <laughs> decided to make his own film out of that, in which he celebrated himself as Bambi, and uh, and it, it's a putrid film, uh, and he, <laughs> it came out in 1942, and it's really really if you. Go and watch it. I'll, I'll bet you that you won't stand for more than five or ten minutes of the film. And uh, uh, he really destroyed uh, Sultan's name. Again, remember, uh, Sultan did not create this for children. This was going to. This is a, a serious film about what happens to minority groups who are marginalized and the uh, other classes, social classes, uh, kill him. Uh, so uh, he's, he's a very contradictory writer uh, because Sultan himself wanted he was Jewish and wanted to become like Christian aristocrats and so on. And he learned, however, that the Nazis were going to kill him in the 1930s and fled to Switzerland, and that's where he spent the last years of his life. So it's very interesting. The research that I did on on the, on this book uh, really taught me many many new things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Even as a, I'm glad you mentioned it because I was going to ask. I was like, wait. So if this is about pogroms against the Jews, how, you know, Disney kind of famously anti-Semitic. Um, you know, as a studio, especially Disney himself, and then. <laughs> One, thank you for. <laughs> I'm trying to get over. You called Bambi a putrid movie. I that, that makes me laugh. Um, but the <laughs> the
1: um, watch it, please, please, please yeah, watch yeah. it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I've seen it before, but I hadn't seen it through the these lenses, and yes. so that'll be I that'll be interesting. Um, also really fascinating to see. Um, there is a long history, uh, many examples of people taking. Uh, serious literature and uh, because of its subject matter assuming it's uh, children's literature. Uh, one that comes to mind um, is Watership Down by Richard Adams. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the with the book but, uh, and, the, and of course like the, I mean I read that as a young child and I was I was like, this is not you know, this is a disturbing book. And so uh it's just really fascinating to to watch um to watch these sorts of things uh unfold um is there uh as you as you walk through um who are some of the other examples of kind of these brave fairy tale creators fairy tale collectors that you would want to highlight
1: uh well uh, uh there's another in in uh the 1930s, there was a, a, a brilliant illustrator. Uh, he, was, he wasn't a writer. He was, uh, his name is, I've written about him in, in, in this book, Rolf Brandt, B-R-A-N-D-T, Ralph Brandt. And he was born into a very exceedingly wealthy German family in Hamburg in Germany in approximately, I, I think at the beginning of the 20th century, and um and his he uh, because he was bo- his father was a merchant, wealth, wealthy merchant, they had a huge company, and part of that was in England. England and Germany at the beginning of the 20th century were in good terms always and, uh, and so uh, this young man, Rolf Brandt grew up in uh, uh, in Germany. Uh, but hey, had he, because his, he was born, his parents, uh, conceived him in England. And so he had, he was British also. He had double, you know, uh, double nationality. And so, uh, he, uh, uh and his brother, who's very famous, uh, and as, as a photographer, uh, he, um, began to study art in Europe and in Switzerland, and uh, traveled about, and he also wanted to become an actor. And eventually, uh, when Hitler came to power, he hated Hitler and uh, and fled because the family had, you know, an estate in England. He returned to England swearing that he would never, ever return to uh, Germany, and he began uh, doing... Brilliant artwork, and he also illustrated the Grimm's and other fairy tales, and brought out the absurdity of certain situations. Brilliant, a uh, uh, really, really amazing artist, and uh, he quite often wrote, uh, uh, did work in pencil, in ink, and so on, and in during the 1930s. Uh, about 38, uh, he was asked, uh, he joined the resistance. He became, he also joined the Communist Party in uh, in uh, England at that time. Uh, and uh, that was okay because at, at least the, the English didn't think all communists would were, were traitors or anything like that. They, they actually, you know, they were socialists. And... Uh, he was asked because he had a passport, a German passport, to rescue Jewish uh, citizens in, from Hamburg and bring them to England. Uh, and so for two or three years, he risked his life, even he was an artist, into, because he felt so dedicated and committed to, uh, you know, uh, to saving people. to He was dedicated to humanity. And his, his, his artwork as, is noted, you know, in, in England and unfortunately not, not so, so much in America. And he was one of the writer, one of the artists I, I've, I've discovered. But there, there were many others, uh, in, who did work in the, in Britain, in Great Britain that we don't know about, uh, who also, uh, some of them were, feminists, some of them were, you know, socialists and whatever, but their artwork was to a certain extent an expression of their political ide- ideologies. And that's why uh, the book uh, talks about fairy tales as political tales.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, And forgive me for glancing off to the side. I had never okay. heard of Rolf Brandt. And I was bringing up uh, his... I was not expecting the artwork they have. It's brilliant. And it's um, more. Uh, and I might be getting the term wrong. Surreal than I was expecting. Yes. Is that yes. the right term? Yeah. It's yes. very interesting. Right. Um, uh, also, in some ways, uh, not what I would think of for Grimm's fairy tales. I have the Arthur Rackham uh, illustrations for the yes, one that I have for no, the kids. Totally which, different. Totally. Yes, different. completely different. Like those are like old, like, they have this like old feel to them. This yes. is, uh, I, I love the challenge that, th- that yes. these provide very, yes. very fascinating. Um, yes. sorry, I got caught up in looking at, <laughs> <laughs> uh, at, uh, these different, these different paintings. Um, so I, you know, you mentioned Ralph Bront, you mentioned, I mean, you have this collection of like of 13, as we look at, uh. Tell us a, a little bit about Lisa Tetzner. I yes. love this, this characterization of the naive and idealistic yes. revolutionary, right? Um, right? And so I, can you draw a little bit about her for us?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now she was a actually, uh, again, she was born, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century. And she had a, a leg that was... Uh, uh, was she was never paralyzed, but she, she had tremendous problems throughout her, her life with one of her legs. And uh, But she, too, she came from a very conservative German family and uh, and met a, met a communist, a German communist, and they got married at the beginning of the uh, 1920s. And uh, she then began, um, uh, because she was a storyteller and traveled she actually learned a lot of the tales by going from town to town and uh, writing them down and became one of the foremost uh, writers of fairy tales for children uh, and and, uh, and also wrote a play uh, uh, that another a, a Hungarian playwright uh, Balach uh, who, who's also in the book Uh, They teamed together and uh, wrote a play about a a young boy who is starving in in a poor family, proletarian family, and he goes out one day to get some milk for the family and meets a talking rabbit, a big talking rabbit, who uh, wants to educate him and takes him on his back, and they fly through the world and, and and to different places where the wars are going on uh and he learns uh uh how uh how important it is uh to for all people to be fed and so on and so forth and it's brilliant a brilliant play and he she continued writing uh, tales that the nazis objected to so where did they go 33 switzerland and yeah uh, and and she and her husband uh, continued writing there. And uh, eventually, they never wanted to go back to Germany, although I think they visited one time. But uh, after the war, they, they were still considered one of the foremost writers of children's literature.
0: Amazing. Uh, and so you're talking about, uh, comes from a conservative German family, meets... Uh, communist marries the communist so did her plays carry this communist tendency throughout them
1: no no not really uh, i mean you you know there were people who were loyal party members but uh, communism uh, uh, became stalinized in the ni- unfortunately ah. in the 1930s and 40s and and people left the party and you know it, Remains, you know, basically in in their way of living, socialist, but uh, they uh, stopped aligning themselves with a particular party, and that's what happened with them. That they they uh, realized that the world was much more complex than they thought.
0: I and so maybe and and I think that's a great lead in here. What I'm trying to understand is where's the naive and idealistic revolutionary part come in. Is it just that they're pushing against the Nazis or was there something a particular thing? They
1: they hoped that despite the, despite what happened with Russia, despite, uh, you know, many difficulties, they, uh, continued, you know, to have this vision of a world in which people are humane. (laughs) And, uh, they kept doing, they kept writing from that perspective, even though, uh, things uh didn't work out that way
0: yeah i and that that's uh very helpful thank you i'm not gonna lie when you first started talking about them and you talked about this conservative uh german woman marrying this uh communist uh german man i had (laughs) images of uh fiddler on the roof uh (laughs) the second i can't remember the uh second uh couple but uh what i do remember because it always makes me laugh so much is the uh you know the the second couple the the man is a communist and uh reptavia asks him to teach his daughters and he he's telling the story of Jacob and Laban and they come up and reptavia comes up and he and of course he goes and Laban tricks Jacob and the the moral of the story is never trust your employer and i <laughs> <laughs> so that's more what i had in mind when you first so thank you thank you for that clarification and just right. tried to, fi- to figure that out um and uh yeah, I want to be respectful of your time, of course. Uh as a last one, I you know, I see the violent, you know, in air quotes pacifist, uh Emery Kellen. Can you talk to us a little bit about about him? About, or is that a- about Emory Kellen.
1: Oh yes. Oh, Emery Kellen. Whoa, uh, wonderful man, uh, amazing man, also Hungarian Jew, um who uh, uh, went to. He, he eventually, he fought in World War One and uh, for, for Germany, and uh, uh, wound up uh, in Munich after after the war and studied art in uh, Munich and became a great caricaturist. Uh, and he uh, that war, the war made him into transformed him into a pacifist. He, you know, fought in, in the trenches. He, he was wounded. He, he managed to stop fighting by once he was wounded, and then he he be, uh, pretended that he was nuts, and 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 did flapped his wings and things like that, and they had to move him to a mental. Uh, uh, a, a hospital that dealt with people who were mentally ill. And so he spent the last part of the war uh, uh, in a hospital that saved his life. Uh, and then he wound up in Munich in 1919, 1920, and he began studying to be an artist. And he became really a brilliant political caricaturist and uh, uh, worked with a uh, uh, a good friend of his, uh, I'm forgetting his friend's name. Uh, at any rate, they were both Hungarian Jews, and they went and they. Those in those days, uh, when the, um, uh, not the United Nations, what was the uh, before the union? uh the League.
0: Yeah the league, league of of Nations. Nations? Yes, yeah, the league of Nations. Yes, League
1: of Nations. So they they needed photographer. Not they couldn't have photographers, but they could have caricatures in the meetings and so on. And they, for uh, almost 15 years um, in Switzerland, uh, became uh, these brilliant uh, uh, caricatures. And and some of the uh, caricatures were of Hitler and Mussolini and so on. So when 1933 came, they uh, had to think about where they were going to go.
0: And that so, didn't go over well. Caricaturing, no. <laughs> no. Okay, yeah. I okay.
1: think that Mr. Hitler didn't uh, approve. Didn't of appreciate their, that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but their, their artwork was actually in an esquire, and in other words, it wasn't just in Europe. And yeah. so, fortunately, they had friends. Um, and in '38, uh, they went to New York, and in New York, uh, Kellen uh, began, continued uh, to. Uh, illustrate uh, all sorts of uh, uh, tales, mainly for children, because he was concerned about their education. And one of the books I've translated and also republished is about Yusuf the Ostrich and and about an ostrich in North Africa uh, in the uh, uh, 1930s or 40s who saves Americans who are uh, in the continent in Northern Africa and so on, and it's a it, brilliant. Uh, and, and I've republished it and redid did it uh, to a great extent. And I, and his daughter lives in Washington, uh, the state of Washington. And I, I contacted her for permission to do this. And so, I, I there were other books he's written that uh, he would. He was a dedicated pacifist, and it was not. He was really clear it's really clear uh, uh, the message in almost all of the artwork uh, his wife his wife was a writer and helped him his Hungarian background didn't help his English so uh, Understandable. She, she helped with the writing of, of, of the text uh, but he, he he did three or four other books that I've collected and he also wrote uh biography about his uh you know trail from hungary to germany to uh to the united states very uh, amazing uh admirable a uh, man
0: uh at one i can see why you wrote about this and uh, i kind of love that you know we gave a kind of a smattering of some of the people you write about but to get the full feature of course they, people should buy your book um but uh Uh, I want to be respectful of your time and I want to leave our audience with something. If you could leave, um, well, first off, it's been a joy having you on. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, what is, uh, one takeaway you'd leave for, uh, our audience as they go about their week that they can think about?
1: Huh? Well, we're living in really brutal times and, uh, in And also it's uh, we we have uh, wars in Europe that are unfounded uh, that dict- dictators are on the rise and even i I think in the United States uh, there's a danger of uh, uh, fascism uh, raising its uh, ugly head. So I hope that people can realize that through our understanding, of literature, of art, of uh, um, education, schooling, and so on, uh, that we can live together and try to enable one another uh, to survive and become clear-headed and uh, to enjoy the this great universe instead of destroying the universe. Uh, the air around us and, and the climate and so on and so forth. So we're living at a, at a very pivotal time. I'm, I'm 80. I'll be 86 in a tomorrow. And happy uh, birthday. Thank you. And I'm somewhat sad, you, you know, mm. uh, not, not happy because I think we have to turn things around. I think we have to, uh, develop our, a sense of compassion, compassion for one another. And to try to help those who have, let us say, uh, less than we might have, to find ways to uh, help them uh, enjoy what we have on this earth. So that's about it.
0: Yeah, and that is the power that stories have. Dr. Zipes, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on today.
1: Great. Thank you for inviting me.